you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Lamentations, and this is where we're going to be starting a study. We're going to be spending uh, the next five weeks uh, with, with a break in there right during the Memorial Day. Um, we're going to spend the next five weeks going through the book of Lamentations. So as you turn there, let me go ahead and start and paint a picture. Picture the noble lady. She has been deposed. Her husband was killed before her very eyes. She's alone, abandoned. Those who once entertained her are gone. Her friends actually participated in her downfall. Her royal attire, her gown, it, rang, it, it, it hangs down in tatters, filthy around her. She weeps in the street, lower than the slaves. This once proud lady, her name is one you know well. Lady Zion, Jerusalem. So let me ask, and you can just share the answer, I'll repeat. Why are we looking at Jerusalem as we start the study in Lamentations? Absolutely. Jeremiah is lamenting, hence the name, Lamentations, because of the destruction of Jerusalem. So, let's look at the importance of Jerusalem to Lamentations by actually getting a running start through, through Jerusalem's history. And it's going to show us why Jerusalem was even so important to God's people. And we'll, we're going to look and just highlight Jerusalem's importance. We'll look at it, Jerusalem's pride and then ultimately the adultery of Jerusalem. And 1 Kings chapter 9 in Psalm 132, and there's other places as well, but it refers to Jerusalem as a, quote, chosen city by God. It was used by Zion, or the name of Zion. This is an ancient name, and it was used for various parts of Jerusalem, but Zion was also used to describe Judah as a whole, the southern part of the nation of Israel, but it also is used to talk about the people, generally, of Israel. It's a metaphor, often, of God's people. In Psalm 76, verse 2, it says, and I'll, I'll just quote, quote here, where his bode has been established in Salem, his dwelling place in Zion. So, what is Salem where Yahweh has established his abode. Well, this goes back actually to ancient times. And if you look in Genesis chapter 14, we see an interaction between Abram and the king of Salem. Does anyone know who this is? Melchizedek, exactly. So Jerusalem or Salem, Jerusalem is city of Salem or city of peace was the capital of Melchizedek. He was the king, but he was also the priest of the Most High God. And Melchizedek had significant influence with Abram, blessing Abram, 
And Abram gave him a tithe or a tenth of spoils that he had from some battle. And David actually highlighted in Psalm 110 the importance of this king-priest person of Melchizedek um, when he talked about him theologically and his, his office. Moses, he actually proclaimed that God would select a single location to demonstrate his exclusivity and the centrality that he had both in Israel as well as the whole world. And this was in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Now, generally, the offices of priest and king were separated. And I say generally, it actually is specifically. Second Chronicles uh, 26 requires the kings and the priests to be separate. They're two separate lines. But just as Melchizedek had the two offices together, Jerusalem as a city in a very similar way, it brought those two offices together. So if you look at the political side of Jerusalem, this was the city of the Davidic kings. In 2 Samuel 5 or 1 Kings 8, we see that David selects Jerusalem as his capital. But also, eschatologically, when you look at end times for Israel, Jerusalem and her kings were going to be located together, and it would be the pinnacle of the world. This actually had a foretaste with Solomon when he was king. We had the whole world, kings and rulers, that were coming to Jerusalem with wealth and wisdom pouring into Jerusalem. So politically, there's great importance for Jerusalem, but also religiously, spiritually, and we know God's temple was built in Jerusalem, and God's temple was the actual footstool, the actual seat of Yahweh himself, where he resided with his people. We also had three times a year, there were religious festivals or feasts to be able to come together and worship God in Jerusalem, where he dwelt, Deuteronomy 12 speaks of this. So in, in all, Jerusalem was the center of all of Israel's activities. It was the center of God's promises to the nation, but also to its kings, and ultimately to the whole world. God's continued relationship was going to be based in Jerusalem in Psalm 122. In Psalm 133, God was blessing Jerusalem in Isaiah 11, Jerusalem was the hope for Israel as well as the hope for the world. Israel brought all of these understandings with them when they came to worship God. And Psalm 87 actually demonstrates Israel's understanding of Jerusalem, Jerusalem's exceptionalism when it actually numbers the people from Jerusalem separate from the people from the rest of the land. Unfortunately, this led to a pride of Jerusalem. Israel assumed Jerusalem was going to be protected by God. One commentator summarized this assumption. He said, Yahweh would certainly not abandon the place where his name dwelled or where he established 
his blessing. This mentality, it actually allowed Israel to sin and believe that they would escape the wrath of God. And there was one king from Assyria, Sennacherib, who just, what happened with him, reinforced this belief. In 2 Kings chapter 18, you find that Sennacherib, he comes and invades Judah. And so what does the king Hezekiah do? Rather than turning to the Lord, he actually goes and rounds up the treasures from the house of the Lord and the palaces and tries to buy off Sennacherib and say, here's, here's the treasures, go ahead and leave. And so, of course, the Assyrians, as brutal as they are, this, this was not effective. So the next chapter, in 2 Kings 19, Sennacherib actually mocks Yahweh. And overnight, God kills 185,000 Assyrians. Sennacherib flees, goes back home, and is assassinated by his sons. So because of this, Jerusalem believed that they were protected and would be able to escape ultimate uh, judgment because of their sin. Let me quote another commentator who said, the prophets condemned this same attitude in Jeremiah 7 and Ezekiel 24, demonstrating that this was indeed a substantial disposition of the nation. The fact that they were being corrected from this prideful understanding highlighted the fact that it was an issue that they had. And ultimately, the sin of Israel with their pride turned where it always does, and it turned to their adultery. They're turning to other nations rather than turning to the Lord. Israel consistently ran to other nations when they were in peril rather than running, running to God. Nearly every time they had the opportunity they chose wrong. And just a survey here, you have 1 Kings chapter 15, 2 Kings chapter 16, Hosea 2, Hosea 7, Hosea 8, Jeremiah 22, Ezekiel 23. Each one of these are points where Israel turned to other nations rather than turning to the Lord. And so when Babylon came, we actually have Jeremiah very specifically saying in chapter 2, verse 18, and now what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink from the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink from the waters of the Euphrates? What he's talking about here is turning to these foreign nations for, um, for deliverance rather than turning to the Lord. So because of Israel's rebellion against God, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, they all oppressed Jerusalem. Kings in Jerusalem were deposed by foreign governments. Kings in Jerusalem were actually imprisoned in foreign lands. Jerusalem was ultimately destroyed by the Babylonians. The people were slaughtered. The rulers and the elite were carried off into Babylon. The temple was destroyed and the city was left destitute. In the year 587, this happened. And I'm going to be looking in 2 Chronicles 36 to read a narrative, starting in verse 15. Yahweh, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. 
But they kept mocking the messengers, despising his words, and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of Yahweh rose against his people until there was no remedy. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on the young man or the virgin or the old man or the aged. They gave them all into his hands. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of Yahweh, and the treasures of the king and of his princes, all these he brought down to Babylon, and they burned the house of God, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem, and burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia to fulfill the word of Yahweh by the mouth of Jeremiah. So let's place the fall of Jerusalem in history, where it fell. We have Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Then Jacob has his son, Joseph, who goes into Egypt without his coat of many colors. Then there's an exodus, and they come out, and the the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Then you come to Joshua, where they have the conquest in the land, and they go in. This is where the walls of Jericho came a-tumbling down. We know this song. Then after the conquest, we had judges. This is where you had Samson and others who ruled, um, Jeru- or ruled Israel. And ultimately, King Saul was their first king. Then David and Goliath, and ultimately David was made king. Then he moved his capital to Jerusalem. His first son was Solomon, and Solomon died. And then Israel was split into two nations, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. 350 years later, the Babylonians come. Judah is utterly destroyed. Now, we in Fort Worth, Texas, really cannot understand the implication of the destruction of Jerusalem. We have 9-11. We have the Trade Center. We have Pearl Harbor. We have other instances that we can remember. But none of these instances that we have experienced also crushed our view and our understanding of our religion. This is what the destruction of Jerusalem was to the Israelites. The noble lady, Lady Zion, has been deposed. So how do we answer a couple questions? How should I understand suffering under God's judgment? How do I understand general suffering due to living in a fallen world? These are both questions that Lamentations addresses for us. So Lamentations is actually a series of five poems. There's five chapters, and each one is a standalone lament. Each one is a direct response of Jeremiah to the fall and destruction of Jerusalem. They were written to be a roadmap to the worship of God for one who is sitting in grief and tragedy. 
So why do we want to study Lamentations? Lamentations is going to help fill your ministry toolbox with very practical passages that will lay stepping stones, making a path leading from the mire of living under the consequences of sin and taking us to the sweet garden of worshiping God in faith. Lamentations, it teaches us, and this is the theme, and if you look on your notes, you'll see this, but it teaches us that God's character shows he is worthy of our turning to him. God's character shows that he is worthy of our turning to him. So allow me to give an overview of the book of Galatians. How about Lamentations? We'll do that. Um, ISI is in Galatians <laughs> right now. So. so in Lamentations chapter 1 and chapter 2, we see that God's bitter judgment of sin, or we see God's bitter judgment of sin. Now, chapter 1, in God's judgment, in his wrath, it really looks at um, primarily the relationship between those being judged and those around them. And we, we call that the horizontal perspective. But then in chapter 2, under that same judgment, the same bitter judgment of sin, we see more specifically a vertical perspective. What is God's perspective? What is he doing? But also, as God's righteous people, how do we respond when we see the wrath of God pouring out upon sin? Now, Lamentations chapter 3, this is the crux. This is the most important section of uh, Lamentations, and it's the longest section, but it is where we learn that we are to wait patiently under God's discipline. It speaks of repentance and brokenness of sin. Lamentations chapter 4, this is where we learn to trust in God alone. It highlights idolatry. It helps us identify other sources that we can place our trust in rather than God. And ultimately, in Lamentations chapter 5, we learn trust in God alone. God is sovereign and God is just. He alone is worthy of our trust. Trust his character. So let's go ahead and look at Lamentations chapter 1. This is the horizontal perspective of God's bitter judgment of sin. So Lamentations 1, it's actually going to be an acrostic. So if you were to lay out the alphabet A, B, C, D, E, F, G, each verse starts the first word with a letter of the alphabet, and the next verse is a subsequent one. Now, in the Hebrew alphabet, there's 22 um, letters, so that means we're going to have a total of how many verses? 22, exactly. So, um, one of the things, and this is important to know as well, one of the things to know about Lamentations, um, and this is going to be the first four chapters as well as chapter one, but it is written in kinameter. That's Q-I-N-A-H. And simply what that is, that is a funeral dirge or a lamenting psalm. Think of it as, if you go back to 
I'm not sure I can recall exactly what this meant, but I remember iambic pentameter, right? There was like some type of rhythm that you would have in, in poetry. This is what kina is specifically to be used in funeral processions. And so what I'm going to do, I'm actually going to play for us a little bit of this kina meter as we're hearing it in Hebrew and notice and feel the lament dirge as this is being presented. This continues for 22 verses. Just deep, sorrowful. This is a funeral dirge. So this is one of the things for us to continue or to consider. When Jeremiah is writing in an acrostic format in this kinometer, it forces him to be very intentional and think very carefully about how and what he is going to say. It's incredibly restrictive in its length, and it's restrictive in its word choice, and therefore it's very precise in its message. This lament is a skillfully crafted work designed to share with us God's truth, and this is going to provide us four truths of God's bitter judgment of sin. And these should drive us to repentance. And all of these are written out on your um, handout. So you can look at these. Feel free to take notes. There's a lot of empty space in there. But these four truths of God's bitter sin are God is the sovereign judge. Jerusalem is guilty. Sin is deceptive. But ultimately, judgment brings confession. Now, these truths are not laid out in an orderly sequence where he says truth one, truth two, truth three, but rather, much like one who is in grief will have their thoughts pour out helter-skelter in different ways, this is the same way that he writes where these four truths will be very clear, but it's more of a shotgun pattern, and we're going to be able to take these, each one, throughout the chapter and see how this is a repeated theme. So as we read, and we're going to actually go ahead and start by reading all the way through the entire chapter. As we read, I want you to look for these and make a note, jot down on your paper or in your Bible when you see these themes kind of repeated. But also as we read, I want you to notice the imagery of Lady Zion. Listen for her grief, her tears, her guilt. What condition is she in? Listen for her children, her friends, her lovers, the clothing, her voice, her crying out, her immorality, her filth and uncleanliness. And normally what we do in our church is stand as we read 
Um, because we are going to be reading a larger section, I'd like everyone to go ahead and you can continue to remain seated because I want you to um, feel free to take your pen, highlight, under, underline, just mark things that stand out. And as I read this lament, I'm also going to stop a little bit and try to draw our attention to some of the poetry that we won't really have time to delve into in our study this morning. So I hope it won't be distracting from the text, but I hope it will actually help open our eyes to it. So join me now as we read Lamentations, starting in verse 1. How lonely sits the city. It was full of people. How like a widow she has become. She who was great among the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with her tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nation, but she finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The road to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head. Her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Now, notice the contrast here between today and the days of old. It says, Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from the days of old. When her people fell into the hands of the foe, there was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Notice, they see her, she herself turns away. Her uncleanliness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. Now, we're getting ready to start a section here about crying out to the Lord, but it starts mid-verse. It's wanting us to not stop like I just did. <laughs> so, it wants us to not stop and go right into crying out of the Lord. So, she has no comforter. Oh Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hand over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary. Those whom you forbade to enter your congregation, 
all her people groan as they search for bread and they trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high, he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hands, they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden us as in a winepress, the virgin daughter of Judah. Now see the picture of the widow Zion. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hand, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have been rebellious against his word. But hear all you peoples and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Feel this emotion. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street, the sword breathes. In the house, it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all of my transgressions. For my groans are many and my heart is faint. So let us walk through the themes that we see repeated in this lament. The four truths of God's bitter judgment of sin, each of which, which should drive us to repentance. And number one, God is the sovereign judge. This should drive us to repentance. James 4.12 says, There is only one lawgiver and judge. He is able to save and destroy. We see his destruction 
on display here. If you look in verse 5, it says, Yahweh has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Now, let me ask this, starting verse 12. If you look 12 through 15, even going a little bit further, who is it that is the main actor doing the actions in, this, in these verses? That's right. God, the Lord. Yahweh is doing this. No, just notice what this says. Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow, verse 12, which was brought upon me. There was one who brought this upon me. Let's see who was bringing it. Which Yahweh inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. He sent fire. He made it descend. He spread a net. He turned me back. He has left me stunned, faint. By his hands, he caused. The Lord gave. The Lord rejected. He summoned. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress. Yahweh has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Reading this lament, you cannot escape the fact that God is not a passive, grandfatherly figure in this lament. God is not making lemonade out of the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. Yahweh, God, is the sovereign judge executing his wrath upon the unrighteousness and the ungodliness of Judah. Where have we just heard this echoed? Think of Romans 1.18, where the wrath of God is revealed against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, as Dan preached last week. He is doing this through his instruments, the peoples of the nations, of all classes of people. God is the sovereign judge who in Exodus 34, 7 says, who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God is the sovereign judge. And do you know what makes this so scary? Point two, Jerusalem is guilty. We are guilty. This should drive us to repentance. We see this in verse five again. It says, Yahweh has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. In verse eight, Jerusalem has sinned grievously. Therefore, she has become filthy. Verse 9 says, Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. And one commentator says, This phrase refers to the sexual immorality. The uncleanness was in her skirts. 
which in prophetic literature is how God regards his people's sin. Jerusalem's past wickedness had caught up with it. The city was stripped naked, found to be unchaste, and utterly shamed. Her future was God's judgment, and she did not care. She pursued her passions, taking no thought of the coming consequences. Brothers and sisters, please take heed of the deceptive lies of sin. Where does this come from? Or finish this phrase, we'll put it this way. When sin is fully accomplished, it brings forth what? Death. James 1, 15 shares this. They knew, in Jerusalem, they knew what their future was. God had told them. In Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28, he lists out, if you don't obey my laws, if you disobey me, here's 33 verses of the destruction I'm going to pour out upon you. And ultimately, your bodies will be heaped upon the heaps of your um, uh, altars that you were um, using to worship other gods. Jerusalem's response in verse 9 should terrify anyone who is in open rebellion against God. Her uncleanness was in her skirts, but she took no thought of her future. Therefore, her fall is terrible. God is a sovereign judge. Jerusalem is guilty. And this is a perfect lead-in to the third truth that we see of God's bitter judgment of sin. And that is number three, that sin is deceptive. Sin is deceptive, and this should drive us to repentance. I want to pick back up in James chapter 1, where we had just read. And it says, Then desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. A New American Standard says, and when sin is fully accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no um, variation or shifting shadow. Sin promises life and pleasure and joy and happiness but sin is lying. Sin is deceiving you. When sin is fully accomplished, it brings forth death. Let's look at the death Jerusalem experienced. In verse 1, she who was a princess is now a slave. Now, the princess is actually understood to be anyone, any lady in a royal court, a noblewoman. This transformation, it isn't just she's been brought to destitution, but she's been brought to slavery, forced labor. Verse 2, among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. 
one of life's most painful experiences is to be deserted or betrayed in a time of need by those we thought were friends. Judah has frequently put its trust in other nations rather than in the Lord, and she is seeing the fruit of this misplaced trust. This phrase, among all her lovers, it actually echoes of what Jeremiah had warned them about originally in Jeremiah chapter 3. So, Jeremiah 3, 1. If a man divorces his wife, and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not the land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers, and you would return to me, declared the, declares the Lord. Note how this theme reverberates throughout the entire lament. Those nations that Judah prostituted herself after have now abandoned her. Verse 2, among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. Verse 19, I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. Verse 9, she has no comforter. For these things I weep, in verse 16. My eyes flow with tears, for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. Now, literally, spirit is soul, nefesh. She pursues other nations for comfort. She pursues other nations for the reviving of her soul. God has already provided for the reviving of the soul. Let me ask, what has God provided for the reviving of the soul? Think Psalm 119. Say it again. His word, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. God has provided what she was seeking among the nations. Now, notice this fall. Her priests groan. Her virgins have been afflicted. And she herself suffers bitterly in verse 4. The priests in Psalm 135, verse 2 are the servants of God who are to praise God in his house. But they groan. In Psalm 148, verse 12, the virgins are called to join in and praise the name of Yahweh. But they have been afflicted and they suffer bitterly. We see in verse 5, Yahweh has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. And verse 12 is almost a perfect summary of the bitterness of sin. Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow. Brothers and sisters, sin is deceptive. This should drive us to repentance. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 11 and 12, it says, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our own instructions on whom the end of the ages has come. That's us. 
Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he falls. Take heed of Jerusalem's example. Sin is deceptive. This should drive each one of us to repentance. So let's walk down this staircase to the final step of the four truths that we see in God's bitter judgment of sin. God is sovereign and he's the judge. Jerusalem is guilty. Sin is deceptive. And ultimately, judgment brings confession. This is the first step of repentance. Now, we know that all of God's judgment does not always result in confession and repentance. But we see that laid out in here, and this is what we should be both instructing others uh, to do as well as ourselves. The very act of confession brings God glory. We see this in the confession of sin. In, in Joshua chapter 7, verse 19 and 20, we see an interaction where Joshua says to Achan, Achan has just stolen some of the banned things from Jericho, and he hid them. And Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered, Joshua, truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. He then confessed, gave glory to God, and was executed. The very act of confession brings glory to God. And we've seen where Lady Jerusalem has confessed her sin to God. Now, notice that all the confessions aren't just merely confessions of sin. We have three types of confession that we see laid out in, in Lamentations chapter 1. First, we see confession that confession re includes recalling the truths of God and what he has done. And we see this in verse 7, where Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from the days of old. The days, in the days of old, Jerusalem and her kings followed Yahweh. In the days of old, Yahweh dwelt among his people. He sat upon the mercy seat. In the days of old, Yahweh protected Jerusalem and blessed his people. Confession includes recalling what God has done and who he is. But Confession also includes a correct or a right view of righteousness and guilt. In verse 18, we can see that Yahweh is in the right. Yahweh is righteous. I have rebelled against his word. Jerusalem is rebellious, guilty. Confession also includes crying out to God. Verse 11, look, O Yahweh, and see, for I am despised. She cries out to God. She no longer cries out to her lovers. 
she's now crying out to Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. So each of these four truths, God is a sovereign judge, Jerusalem is guilty, sin is deceptive, and judgment brings confession. Each one of these truths are actually reflected in the last stanza, those last three verses of Lamentations chapter 1. So let's look specifically at those. And we'll see, first of all, that God is a sovereign judge, starting verse 21. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day that you announced. They're glad that you have done it and you have brought. We see in verse 22, you have dealt with me because of all of my um, transgressions. You have dealt with me. It's not the Babylonians, it's God. We see Jerusalem is guilty. I have been very rebellious in verse 20. Verse 22, you have dealt with with me because of my transgressions. My transgressions are why you are dealing this way. We see that sin is deceptive. Verse 20, look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me. They heard my groaning Yet there is no one to comfort me. My groans are many. My heart is faint. Sin is deceptive. It is bitter. But ultimately, judgment brings confession. Verse 20. For look, O Lord, I am in distress. Crying out to Yahweh. I have been very rebellious. Confession of the guilt. You have dealt with me because of all of my transgressions. The final three-verse stanza, it repeats the truths being taught throughout this entire lament. So what do we do with this? We'll have a couple applications. And first, a personal application for godly citizens, God's righteous people. When you turn on the news stations, what do you see? Even while we might sit above the filth that we see taking place in our nations, we see our fellow citizens reject God. We can say the same words that we see in Lamentations. Verse 20, look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach, my stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me. In the streets, the sword breathes. In the house, it is like death. We see the effects of sin in our nations. So what do we do? We cry out to the Lord on behalf of our people. And the little thing to help us memorize this, in Daniel 9, Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9. Each one of these chapters, we see the prophets who are crying out to God, confessing the sins of the people to God, 
praying that God would grant repentance to the people. Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, chapter 9. That's a good one to jot down. And we can also wait for Lamentations chapter 2. <laughs> so Lamentations chapter 2 addresses this very thing. How do we, God's people, um, respond in this situation? So a more personal application, though. There was once a uh, theologian who once said, God wants you to know about God's righteous wrath so that you will flee to the remedy. Does anyone know this theologian? Dan Kirk. That was last week. <laughs> so, God wants us to know about God's righteous wrath so that we will flee to the remedy. Christ, are you in sin? Do you have sin in your life that you are hesitant of repenting of? Repent. Look at verse 20. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been rebellious. Her condition, her stress, the agony, the grief. Why? Because I have been rebellious. She could be saying, I'm miserable because my city has been destroyed. But she is miserable and wrung because she has been very rebellious. If you are under the bitter discipline of the Lord, respond as the Lord leads through this lament. Be in distress over your sin. And this is what God refers to in 2 Corinthians 7 as godly grief, godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Now, thirdly, the application is one of ministry. Do you have someone in your life who is in unrepentant sin? Bring them to Lamentations chapter 1. Show them the four truths of God's bitter judgment of sin that should drive them to repentance. God is their sovereign judge. They are guilty. Their sin is deceptive. Judgment should bring their confession. As we said, the theme of Lamentations was God's character shows that he is worthy of our turning to him. Let's pray. Yeah. Our God and Father, we pray that you would use these words to draw our, heart, our hearts to you. Equip us to be ministers for you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.